You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 102. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Tom Jefferson, a marine mammal researcher and the director of Viva Vaquita, an NGO dedicated to the conservation of the vaquita. Now, here at Wildlands, we've been actively involved in vaquita conservation for about a year and a half now. Through our work producing our next long form documentary, Souls of the Vermilion Sea. 2016 was a milestone year for vaquita conservation. Efforts to save the species from extinction were ramped up considerably, and the species received more mainstream media coverage than ever before. Despite this, the vaquita population in the upper Gulf of California has continued its precipitous rate of decline, with the increased conservation efforts having no measurable impact. This culminated just a few weeks ago when the Mexican Minister of the Environment, Rafael Pacquiano, announced that Mexico would take steps in 2017 to launch a captive breeding program for the vaquita. Although vaquita experts have been discussing this option for a number of years, it was always viewed as a last-ditch effort, something only worth attempting if all other options had been expended. Well, it is now clear that we have reached that point. EOC producer Sean Bogle and I got Tom on the line to do a year in review for the vaquita, as well as to answer some of our burning questions about what a captive breeding program for the vaquita may look like. Let's jump in. Uh, my name is Tom Jefferson. Uh, I am the director of Viva Vaquita, which is an NGO that is focused on conservation of the vaquita, the most endangered marine mammal in the world. And I, um, uh, my training is as a marine mammal biologist. I've been studying marine mammals since uh, about 1983. Um, and um, most of my work has been on conservation-related uh, biological research uh, and working towards preservation of species that are endangered and threatened by human activities. Well, Tom, my question to you at this stage of the game is where are we with the vaquita today uh, at the end of 2016, December 2016? Okay, well, um, I have to, to be honest here and say that where we are with vaquita conservation, uh, unfortunately, is not in a very good place. Um, there, as I think probably a lot of people are aware, there has been a, a great deal of effort um, within Mexico, um, within the U.S., um, within some other countries as well. And there's been really an unprecedented amount of attention put on the vaquita, especially in the last two years or so, um, with a lot of uh, environmental organizations, large environmental organizations becoming involved and a number of scientists uh, dedicating a very large percentage of their uh, time and effort and resources towards trying to save the species from extinction. And as a result of all that, um, you know, we certainly have much more awareness out there about the vaquita issue. But the reality of it is, is that the species has continued to decline uh, in numbers. And that decline has actually accelerated in the last couple of years. And we are now at a very, very desperate point in vaquita conservation where we very well could lose the species in the next uh, year or two or three years um, and I say that with the way it's going right now with a pretty high level of certainty. So um, despite the fact that there is some good news in terms of um, increased attention, um, things are not working and the species is still uh, declining towards extinction. So, you know, the efforts that have been done over the last so many years have not been working. Then what are those next steps? Yeah. Um, so the, the situation in terms of the status of the species, um, you know, obviously it's true that, that, you know, people have been saying the species is in danger of extinction for a number of, of years. And I mean, that's been true at a certain level, um, you know, ever since the, the first real population estimate that we had for the species in the late 1990s, 
was of about 600 animals. And, you know, that's already a very, very low population, uh, global population for a species, especially for one that does not exist anywhere in captivity. And, you know, the prospects for um, the species surviving if those animals in the wild were to, to disappear um, is, you know, very, very basically certain that they would go extinct. Um, we are now in a situation at the end of 2016 where the number of animals left uh, in the wild is probably below 50. Um, you know, the exact number, of course, is, is not known with 100% certainty, but there's quite good information from uh, the recent vessel survey that was done last year and uh, the very extensive acoustic monitoring project that uh, is in place in Mexico that indicates that the animals have now um, reached a level of uh, 50 or below, which some biologists consider to be a almost like a, a threshold level for where uh, a species is really very likely to survive. So we're at the point now where there are so few animals left that um, there, you know, there would be concern on some people's part that the, the population may not even necessarily be uh, viable, even if the threats are removed. Now, one thing we have to understand about that is that, of course, there's a huge amount of uncertainty about that. And, and a lot of that is based on theoretical considerations, uh, based, on, based on genetic diversity and things like that. Um, we do know and or believe that certain species of mammals have had their numbers reduced to significantly below 50 and survived and recovered. Um, and that includes several marine mammal species like the northern elephant seal, um, the Guadalupe fur seal, um, and species like that. So, you know, I personally don't subscribe to the idea that, you know, even if the numbers are below 50, that that means that uh, the population is not viable, but that, that it's, we're reaching, we're certainly reaching a point where that would be um, a concern on some people's mind. So the situation is very, very desperate. Um, and the big problem, of course, is that the, the threat that's facing the species that is um, entanglement in gill nets, has not gone away and, in fact, has actually gotten more intense and severe in the last couple of years and has become more difficult to deal with because now it's basically happening um, kind of under the radar. Um, the fishing is essentially illegal and the fishermen are operating in a way that basically makes it very difficult for us even to monitor the situation, much less control it or stop the mortality. There has been an announcement by Pacquiano, which is the environmental minister of Mexico, that there is going to be a very, very large push to capture and contain vaquita in a facility for captive breeding. If you can tell me what that entails exactly and whether that's even possible. Right. Well, I, I do know that 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 uh, effort is um, has been discussed for some time and uh, is moving forward. Um, I can't really give any specific details of that. Uh, I think there will be some more details uh, about what is being planned forthcoming um, when the uh, server report uh, becomes available, most likely next month. Um, but I can say that you know that is something that I am aware is in the works, um, and it's. A quite a big change from what has been uh, planned in the past in terms of the official vaquita conservation efforts um, through CERVA and other uh, measures. And I think this has to do primarily with the fact that the numbers have continued going down so dramatically um, despite all of the efforts and all of the work that Mexico and the U.S. and other countries have been putting into this. Um, and I think people are now at a stage where they're realizing that, you know, what we've been doing the last couple of years, although, you know, it, there were times when it seemed like it was promising and it was going to have the desired effect. Um, there are a number of things going on in the world, um, economic and otherwise, that have basically prevented those efforts from arresting the decline of the species. Um, and with the numbers now being at such a very, very critically low level, um, most, uh, well, I wouldn't say most, but a lot of people in Vaquita conservation are sort of, I think, doing a lot of soul searching and realizing that, you know, maybe it's time for us to, um, you know, think outside the box is one way of putting it, but um, look at, at, at a different approach because the approach that we've been using 
is just not working. I mean, that's, there's, there's no, there's no debating that really. And, um, you know, we can sit back and continue doing the same thing that we've been doing the last couple of years and saying, well, you know, we're, we're doing our best with these efforts, but I think it's pretty clear that if we do that, the species is going to decline to zero and is going to be extinct within a very short number of years, two or three years. Um, so the, realization I think now is that, you know, it's, it, it really is essential to look at other options. And unfortunately we don't have a lot of other options, but the idea of capturing individuals, um, placing them into a C pen where they would be protected from uh, gillnet entanglement and evaluating whether or not those animals might be potentially used in a captive breeding effort is something that certainly has been mentioned and, and talked about at meetings for many, many years and kind of rejected as uh, an approach up until very recently. But now with the new, uh, very, very desperate situation that Makita is in, suddenly uh, things look different. And I think a, a lot of people are realizing that, you know, this may be our very, very last chance. It's not an ideal option by any means. I think in anybody's book, um, it's not where we would like to be right now. We'd much rather um, see these animals have a stabilized and a recovering population in nature without any, you know, interference, um, in their, their daily lives from, from our activities. But, um, unfortunately that isn't the case. And we're now kind of left with this very, very distasteful, <laughs> um, reality that, uh, we really do have to try something different or we're almost definitely going to lose the species very soon. You mentioned that this concept of, of, uh, captive breeding for the vaquita is something that, that has been discussed for a long time. Um, I mean, my question is like, why, has it taken up until this absolutely critical stage for folks to say, yes, let's move forward with this, right? Like, is there something about the vaquita that sort of makes this this idea, like something about the behavior of them that, that makes captive breeding particularly difficult? Or like, you know, why this, uh, why have folks been so reluctant to uh, implement a program like this until this absolutely critical stage? Right. Well, you have to look at the the biology of the species, I think, to really sort of understand that, um, you know, for a lot of species of mammals, you know, most mammals are terrestrial mammals and they, they, they live on land and, and, you know, most land mammals have been held captive um, in zoos or uh, parks or whatever, um, in some cases for hundreds of years. Um, and we know quite a bit about their, um, their biology, their behavior, their reproductive biology. And that kind of thing. And, and in many cases, there's even been successful um, captive breeding of those animals, um, whether it's been for reintroducing animals into nature or for providing stock for, you know, zoos and aquariums or whatever. Um, but the vaquita is a very different species. It's, it's a species, A, that has never been held captive, B, that is very, very elusive and very difficult even to find, much less to capture in a successful way. Um, and so I think People have been, I believe, um, rightly concerned about how, what the chances of success would be for a program that involved capturing animals, bringing them out of their natural habitat, um, and whether or not that might, in fact, pose a bigger risk than leaving the animals out in the wild. And until probably a year ago, um, we knew that the population was still declining. Um, but I think we always felt that the animals had a better chance of surviving if they were left alone in nature versus, you know, taking this risk of trying to go out and capture these animals that we don't know much about. Um, but now the, the mortality rate is so high in nature and the population is so low that it sort of changes the balance of things. And it makes it so that this admittedly quite risky uh, idea and strategy of trying to capture animals and potentially breed them in captivity. Um, although yes, it's still risky and still questionable compared to the other option, which is basically essentially just sitting back and watching the animals go extinct. Um, it now looks like, um, a reasonable option, whereas a year or two ago, it, it, it didn't for many people. And so I think that's the, the big, the big issue. Um, the other issue I think that's a part of that is that a lot of us, myself included, have been very concerned that um, if we proposed a captive breeding program for the species, that that might um, in some way reduce the amount of effort and or um, pressure that is put on uh, Mexico to remove gillnets from 
the range of the species. And we all, all of us involved in vegetative conservation know that there's no way this species can survive in the long term without gillnets being removed from its habitat. It's just, it's just an, uh, you know, an absolute certainty that we basically need to remove gillnets from the area where the animals occur. Um, and so we didn't want to propose captive breeding if that would um, result in a situation where it was less likely that the gillnets would be removed from the animal's habitat in nature. Um, but the reality of it is now that um, we realize that we, we kind of have to go there. Um, you know, it, 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 we obviously have to do what we can to prevent um, any attempt at uh, uh, captures or captive breeding from reducing the prospect of getting rid of the gillnets in the short term. But the reality of it is, is that the gillnets are going to be there in the short term. I mean, the, the, the enforcement efforts by Mexico to try to remove illegal gillnets from the animal's habitat, um, despite the fact that they have increased dramatically in the last couple of years, are just not working. They're, it's not anywhere near enough to reduce uh, or eliminate those nets. And so those nets are going to be there. And um, animals are dying, every, you know, every probably every month there's an animal dying uh, or every couple of months there's an animal dying in those nets. And the population is so low now that they can only withstand, you know, one or two uh, deaths a year before the population declines. So we really have to sort of, in my opinion, we really have to kind of look at this in a new light um, and uh, sort of reevaluate um, options that aren't ideal and didn't look very good to us a while ago. But now maybe in the light of new information uh, are looking like they might be more um, reasonable, workable options. You mentioned the risk factor involved in uh, going out and trying to, to capture vaquitas. I mean, I know that this is still hypothetical, right? I mean, this announcement just happened um, a week or two ago, and obviously we don't know the details uh, yet. But, um, I mean, are there other similar species uh, that captive breeding, breeding programs like have been implemented and, and, and successful with that we can sort of look to as examples? Um, and can we sort of like hypothesize like what the best approach might be and what that might look like? Yeah. I mean, that's one, one situation that does um, make it appear a little bit more promising. Um, despite the fact that the vaquita itself has never been captured and never been held in captivity. Um, it is a, a member of a uh, family with seven species. And some of those species are in the same uh, genus, which is the next level of taxonomy above the level of species. Um, and one of those species is the harbor porpoise. And that is a species that has been captured. Um, and uh, initially, I would have to say the efforts at capturing the animal successfully and holding them in captivity probably were not considered uh, to be very successful. Unfortunately, a lot of animals were lost in the process. But over the years, um, a lot was learned. And I think um, eventually certain uh, organizations in Europe have learned how to capture these animals in a way that um, certainly involves still risk, but has reduced the risk to quite a, 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 a level that's quite a bit lower than it was originally. And so, you know, I think by getting folks who have been involved in these efforts with harbor porpoises in Europe involved in this effort with the vaquita, I think it can dramatically increase the chances for success. Um, and there's also another species that has been uh, or actually two species. Uh, there's two species of finless porpoises that occur in Asia. And those animals have been captured as well. Um, and in some cases, actually bred in captivity. Um, so, you know, we do have those close related species that we can sort of make, um, you know, things, can, things that we've learned from those species can be applied to the vaquita situation. But the reality is that it's still, you know, the vaquita is a different species and nobody really knows whether or not it will respond in the same way to capture attempts or to, um, you know, being held in, in some kind of a, a net or pen the way that harbor porpoises and or finless porpoises have. So, um, you know, we, we once again we have to remember that there is a risk and there is some uncertainty here. But, um, you know, it is something that I think, you know, many people now see as um, we kind of have to go there. This whole concept is surrounded by controversy on a, a variety of levels, as I see it. I mean, we, we've the the marine world has been uh, involved uh, or affected by captive breeding for some time, mainly for entertainment purposes. You know, I'm wondering 
you know, and I, and I would think that 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 alone, especially with the recent light of all this uh, uh, awareness and negativity on a lot of these captive breeding programs for entertainment purposes, would somehow play a role in the decision to do this with the vaquita. You know, my my follow up question would be, is that what is that threshold that when you keep and I realize that vaquita are not being uh, uh, captured for any type of entertainment purposes. I get that. But what I want to know is like, what is exactly that threshold that you would keep Vaquita in captivity before releasing it? And I also understand that you would want the the habitat that they would be returned to would be completely safe. So obviously, you know, gillnet free. Um, but once that was established, where does the Vaquita population need to be to release them for a sustainable population in the wild? Yeah, uh, all good questions, and, and uh, the answer is that we, we don't really know the answer to any of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry about that, but that's just that's just the way it is. Um, it, this really is a, a very, very poorly known and poorly understood species, and that's one of the things that makes it so difficult is that, you know, we, we because we know so little, even about the reproductive biology of the animals, there's actually one paper about the life history and reproduction of the vaquita, and it's based on a very small number of specimens. And it's from the uh, early 1990s, I believe it was published. So, you know, it's not even recent information. Um, you know, we, we have to sort of recognize that, that, that a lot of these things are unknown. And, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the things that went into the, um, the original hesitation on the part of a lot of people involved in vaquita conservation to sort of try to pursue this, this approach. Um, I think, you know, it was felt that if the animals can be, if we can, if we can, get rid of gillnets um, in before the population actually declines to zero or, you know, 10 animals or whatever to some, you know, clearly level that's, that's where the animals probably won't survive. If we can do that without a captive breeding approach, that is the way that I think pretty much everybody wanted to go. And, um, you know, there was pretty good, um, I think, agreement on that until fairly recently. Um, and so, you know, as far as the, the threshold or the number of animals that would need to be, um, you know, in the wild, um, I don't think there's really necessarily any number there that you could quote. Um, but what you said as part of your question is exactly right. I mean, uh, you know, the idea would be, I think that animals would ideally be held in a, some kind of a captive, um, pen, sea pen, um, where they were, although potentially still facing some risks, at least where the chan the chances of them getting caught and killed in a gillnet is essentially zero um, because that's essentially what's killing the animals in, in nature right now. Um, the animals are, are dying in these illegal gillnets that are completely and totally unregulated and, and, you know, being fished illegally. So if animals could at least be kept even for a temporary period of time in the safe relative safety of a um, sea pen or enclosure, um, they could then be potentially released into the wild if and when the gillnets are in fact removed, which of course everybody hopes will be very soon. But I think we also realize that it's not going to happen in the next, you know, two or three years. Um, dis despite the fact that we'd like to see it happen, um, you know, it it's going to take some big change uh, in what's going on in Mexico for that to happen. And that's not likely to happen or it, really it's not even possible. It's going to happen in the next two or three years, I think. Um, so if those animals can be held for a period of time, um, they could potentially be released in five or 10 years or, or whatever it is down the road when the gillnets are, in fact, out of the area. And if those animals in the, in the meantime can be evaluated as potentially being used for captive breeding efforts and they can successfully, you know, rear some, you know, offspring in captivity, then, of course, that can potentially dramatically increase the prospects for the animal surviving. Um, but again, you know, we need to remember that removing gillnets from the habitat of the animals in nature is still a critical ingredient in all of this. And nothing, none of this is going to work if the gillnets are still out there. So I want people to understand what exactly Viva Kita is about and who's a part of it and who exactly their audience is. Um, and once, you know, once you kind of describe that, um, you know, we already have an understanding that scientists and uh, governments, Mexico specifically, um, is is given this the green light that this is what 
this is this is definitely what the next essential step to do to save the vaquita. But there doesn't seem to be very much information about this. I mean, this has just been like the, the, since the beginning we even started our film project that nobody knows what a vaquita is, and that that's that's within Mexico as well. But what I what I'm interested in in finding out is is there you know the information that is out there, um, or when it does get out, does it seem like there might be some a little bit of uh, resistance or blowback from the general public about a big move like this because i know that there people have yeah. different views and and everybody's always going to question what the real agenda is yeah i think i think that's a legitimate concern and um you know our our organization viva vaquita is a coalition of um several uh marine science researchers and uh marine educators and conservationists um and we started out with Basically, there were three organizations that were involved in this coalition, um, and they're all essentially um, organizations that would be considered, you know, environmental groups, green groups, NGOs. Um, and for the most part, you know, we as members of Viva Vaquita um, have not been uh, big fans of uh, cetacean captures and captive breeding efforts. Um, you're exactly right that most of these in the past have been done in a way that was not very um, uh, supportive of conservation efforts. Um, most of them have been done, um, largely by commercial interests, uh, various uh, organizations within the aquarium industry that, you know, were interested in captive breeding animals for producing, um, uh, you know, stock for their captive facilities. Um, and that means that one of the issues there is that that means that the, the research that's gone into, um, cetacean, reproductive physiology and captive breeding has been geared towards those species that are commercially um, used in ocean area like bottlenose dolphins and killer whales and it's not been directed towards uh, endangered species for the most part like the vaquita or some of the river dolphins that, that might really need it and you know that's that's kind of one of the things that's a bit of a catch-22 because it's now seems very unfortunate to us I think that, um, that to many of us that um, we don't have better information about the prospects of captive breeding for uh, endangered species like the vaquita. But in a way, it's also sort of a result of the fact that, you know, many of us have been kind of uh, resistant. And, and in fact, you know, many of us even very much against previous captive breeding efforts by various organizations like SeaWorld and others. So it's a complicated issue. I mean, it's, um, you know, the, the general public, you're right, will probably find this um, confusing and surprising and um, will probably, in many cases, um, have a difficult time seeing why there's been this sort of um, very relatively rapid change of view towards captive breeding for the species. Um, but it, it really involves looking at all of the sort of the, the gray area in between the black and the white. Um, you know, many of us uh, oftentimes try to look at these issues as black and white. You know, uh, Sea World is bad, or the Navy is bad, or captive breeding is bad. Um, captures, you know, holding animals in captivity is bad. Um, things like that. Um, the reality of it is, is that you know, in my opinion, there's there's a bit more gray area to that. Although I, in general, don't support um, you know uh, captive captivity for cetaceans, and certainly not so strictly for entertainment purposes. Um, I do believe that having some animals in captivity, if it's done in a way that is um, humane and very conservation oriented, can in certain situations contribute to uh, the preservation of their populations in the wild. And so, you know, I, I view it as, uh, again, uh, in this sort of a gray area between the black and the white. And I think that's what mainly we're going to have to struggle with in the next uh you know, a couple of months or so as this issue becomes more well-known and people start, you know, thinking about whether or not they support it or not is, you know, um, is this, you know, can people see that, you know, there might be some value in this despite the fact that they might have some preconceived notions that are pretty negative towards uh, the captive breeding efforts that have been done in the past. I'm wondering, is there a benefit or some sort of positive end result in Establishing more awareness by the general public and the international community about an issue like the vaquita um, in it assisting with the recovery of the vaquita. Like 
just because you have more people knowing about this issue, how does that actually impact the Bakita itself? You know, typically you might say, well, this puts more pressure. You know, the, the general public can put more pressure on the Mexican government to do you know, to, to do more to save them. But where we are now, you know, if if, if let's just say the the U.S. Um, you know, this was on, this was a hot topic, much like our, you know, our presidential campaign or, or, or where we are right now. What, how would that benefit the Vaquita? Would that, would any of this extra exposure for the Vaquita actually help the Vaquita get to a different type of, uh, positive outcome? Yeah. I mean, I think your, your question has to do with, you know, kind of what role does sort of public awareness play in, you know, the actual real world conservation of an endangered species like the vaquita. And of course, it's a difficult thing to measure. I mean, it's, it's something that is, you know, very challenging for us to try to, for instance, as a, as a scientist to try to develop some kind of a program where we would measure that in quantitative terms. But the fact is that um, as far as I'm concerned, I think it plays a big role. And the main reason why I say that is because for those species of animals that have been sort of approaching uh, extinction at some point in history and have been, have, have been saved and have recovered to some extent, um, in most cases that I can think of, that's usually happened partly as a result of a large amount of public outcry. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, I can't think of very many situations where a species, um, you know, I mean, for many of the great whales, it's, it's a great example. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, um, people thought that the blue whale was on its way to extinction. Um, and humpback whales were not in very good shape. And, you know, gray whales were showing some evidence of, rec- of recovery for sure. But most of the other baleen whales that had been heavily hunted were um, looking like they were in pretty bad shape. And a lot of people thought that they might not make it. Um, And here we are in 2016 and they're all, you know, they're all here. Um, Blue whales and fin whales are recovering quite well. The humpback whale was recently removed from the endangered species list. Um, You know, we've, we've had some real good successes among some species of large, uh, the great whales um, in terms of their conservation. And I think that's happened to a large extent because there was a huge amount of public outcry at what was going on with those species and the fact that they were, you know, they were being hunted to, to levels that were causing them to be nearing extinction. And without that public outcry and without that, um, you know, awareness on the part of the public and then the follow-up action that people actually took of, you know, signing petitions and, you know, setting up protests and writing letters to the government and things like that. I honestly don't think that would have happened. Um, I think that, you know, we would not have had that kind of a success in these species recovering if it wasn't for that public awareness and then the, you know, the follow-up actions that people took as a result of that. So I, I, I think it is very important that, that, you know, more people become aware of the issue. Um, and I think that, you know, even though a large percentage of the people may not really care, um, even if a small percentage of them actually do care enough, Though that small percentage sometimes can make a quite big difference in what happens in terms of government action and other conservation actions that will hopefully lead to the recovery. In a situation like this, right, it's always uh, it's always good to sort of look back at other related conservation efforts uh, that have have had success. Right. Um, And, you know, I think uh, you brought up uh, some great examples about um, these great whales and how they have recovered and the role that sort of public outreach and, and awareness of these conservation threats to them, what that, you know, the important role that that played in those recovery efforts. You know, one of the other examples that I think a lot of people, uh, at least folks, you know, that are aware and sort of following this this issue with the vaquita are, are pointing to is the California condor, uh, just because the numbers got down so low to a point where yeah. a lot of people had really given up um, on the species and, and they were able to, to bring the species back through a captive breeding program. And it's an example of a species that was extinct from the wild for a number of years, um, and was reintroduced and is now, you know, still endangered, still not out of the woods, so to speak, but you know, there's 450 animals as opposed right. to 22, right? Um, exactly. Yep. So, I mean, uh, however, I mean, you know, one, I think really important difference between the situation, uh, that the California condor faced and the situation that the vaquita faced is that 
a lot of people were aware of the California condor and what was going on. And there was this, this massive sort of public outcry um, to save the species. Um, and then, you know, from my perspective, the really interesting thing that happened is, you know, when the condor biologists who were studying the population got together and said, we've reached this absolute critical stage, which is sort of the same stage that we're at with the vaquita, right? They reached this absolutely critical stage. They realized there were only 22 individuals left. And they said, we have to bring all these birds into captivity and launch a captive breeding mm-hmm. program. It's the only way the species is going is to survive. Yep. And the public reaction to that was split, right? And right. you had these massive conservation groups, the Sierra Club, Audubon, um, coming out and against captive mm-hmm. breeding of the California condor. And, you know, the Sierra Cup launched this massive, very well-funded campaign with the slogan, Death with Dignity. They were actually advocating for the species <laughs> to go extinct, right? Um, and, I mean, there was it launched this sort of, you know, a, a, a national debate, right, on, on this issue right. of captive breeding. Um, I mean, can, like, could this happen with the vaquita? Like, could the captive breeding issue um, sort of push this issue and the species like further into the sort of uh, public light. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that would have, you know, maybe that's the silver lining of the situation that we're in. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I just wonder if like, that's something you're thinking about of like, you know, the, the, the potential impact that this might have on sort of public awareness of the species and the conservation issues that, that it faces. Like, do you anticipate like, uh, con- you know, like serious controversy uh, uh, over this this issue of captive breeding of the vaquitas? Yeah, I think there will be controversy. I mean, uh, you know, many of the the environmental groups that have become very active in vaquita conservation in the last couple of years um, have, uh, you know, a pretty strong history of, of being pretty um, anti, uh, you know, the certainly the the uh, live capture uh, entertainment industry. Um, and, uh, you know, because this involves captures as well, it may be lumped into that same group, uh, of activities and, and, you know, they may very well be against it or have some serious reservations about it. I expect that will probably happen. Um, you know, and, and, you know, like I said, my, my, my personal feelings, um, kind of align with that way of thinking for the most part as well. Um, uh, you know, so it, it is something that's going to be controversial. Um, and, you know, that obviously has some negative consequences because you'd like everybody to be completely 100% unified behind an approach. But on the other hand, it also can potentially have some positive um, repercussions as well. And that is that, you know, that kind of controversy uh, is more newsworthy. And already I think we've seen that since the um, announcement came out uh, recently about the attempt, the uh, plan for the captures. Um, there's been a lot of news stories and a lot more people, I think, are taking notice of the issue um, that hadn't really paid too much attention to it before. Um, you know, and, and, you know, that that could be good. It could be bad. But um, I think that having more people aware of the issue, um, you know, probably is going to be a good thing. Um, and I think, you know, it'll be important and it'll be useful to have a healthy, hopefully very respectful uh, debate, unlike some of the debates we saw um, during the presidential campaign that Sean mentioned, <laughs> which weren't always very uh, healthy and very respectful. But I certainly hope that any debates that are happening as a result of this issue would be more, um, you know, respectful of the other side and people would be, you know, willing to acknowledge that, you know, there is, I think there's a legitimate way of looking at it either way. I mean, I, I certainly have great respect for those folks who say, you know, look, this is, this is not something we should do. I think that, you know, it's, it's not the right thing to do. Um, I may not agree with that necessarily, but I have great respect for that attitude and I certainly see where they're coming from. So, um, you know, if we can, if we can sort of have a, a, a good, healthy debate about this, um, and hopefully come to some reasonable consensus as, as a result of that, I think it'll be a good thing. We've been documenting this for a while now and obviously not as long as you, uh, have been involved in Vikita conservation, but we've definitely, we're, we're neck deep in the issue um, I mean, that's the only, the only yeah. way you're going to be able to tell the story. Um, right. Our film project and all this that's happening is not really just for the vaquita. I mean, and I and I, re, you know, I, we realize that more now than ever, now that we have been, you know, down there and, and engaging with fishermen and, uh, uh, you know, government officials and researchers and, and the whole gamut. And this is just so much bigger than the vaquita. 
Um, it just happens so that the vaquita is essentially collateral damage and, you know, uh, yeah. is just woven in this really intricate web uh, that's that's uh, unfolding every day. It seems like there's something new. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if this this story seems because it is bigger than the vaquita, it's essentially a symbol for other species and the efforts to conserve those species too. Hopefully, before they get to this really narrow threshold in potential extinction, because you've been involved in this for so long with vaquita, and I know you work with a variety of other uh, marine mammals. You know, what does the vaquita effort mean for other species uh, to you? Like, what, what is what is your vision? And then to take it one step further, what does it mean for humanity? Like, why why do all of this? Right. Well, yeah, it is, it is, you know, true that, uh, this, this situation for the vaquita is not unique. Um, you know, this is not the first species of, of marine mammal that's been, uh, close to extinction. Um, we've had uh, several in the past that have been brought to very low levels and, and have recovered, um, through various conservation efforts. And those have been success stories like the Northern elephant seal, which now numbers you know, like over 150,000 animals. And at one point was reduced to maybe 50 or so individuals. Um, and then we've also had some failures. And the most recent one, of course, is the Baiji, which is the Yangtze River dolphin in China that um, had been declining in numbers for many, many decades. And um, in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, reached a very critical level. And um, there was a similar effort to what's going on right now with the vaquita. And unfortunately, that failed and the species uh, declined to uh, extinction. And so, you know, we have, I think we, I think one of the things that's really critical is that we need to look at each one of these situations, whether it's a success or a failure, and we need to examine very carefully and very honestly what happened and why it happened and try to see what we can learn from that situation that might help us out in the next situation. And it's been discussed many times that, you know, the, the, the Baiji um, has only been extinct for less than about 10 years or so. Um, and it's a very recent situation and, you know, we hopefully have learned some lessons from the Baiji that can help us with the Vaquita situation. Um, and I think it's true that some things have, have been learned that have been applied to the Vaquita that have helped, but at the same time, we're, it kind of almost feels to me like we're sort of repeating the same, <laughs> the same situation, um, again. And, and, and one of those things is that, you know, I think we need to start thinking about these issues, um, a long time much earlier and a long time before a species becomes, you know, before it reaches a critical level of like a hundred individuals or 50 individuals. Um, you know, we've got a lot of other species of marine mammals, plus many other species of, of terrestrial mammals and birds and reptiles and, and many other kinds of wildlife that are, um, you know, at some level of um, threat of extinction in the next decade or two. And we very well, we are going to be, dealing with a lot of these same issues um, with many of these species in the future. And so, you know, whatever happens with the vaquita, whether it's a success or a failure and whether the species ends up surviving and recovering or going extinct, you know, I hope that we will, um, everything will be documented and, um, you know, there will be free information about what happened and why it happened. And that, you know, anything that, that happened in the course of those efforts will be applied to future situations where species is, is facing extinction and, you know, we will hopefully be able to do a better job with it in the future. Um, problem is it's easy to say that. And the reality is that, you know, very often these situations do become politicized, as you mentioned with uh, the California condor and others. Um, and that's one of the things that I, it's always frustrating for me. Um, and I think for a lot of people to see that happen, um, you know, once again, I, I really, really hope that we can avoid that. Um, for the vaquita and we can make sure that when we have debates, they are debates about factual information and not, you know, it it is an emotional issue and it's hard to not get emotional. Um, A lot of people are very passionate about the species and about marine mammals in general, but I think it's important to, um, you know, keep the debates focused on factual information and um, potential strategies and not, let things get too polarized. Um, when they do get very polarized, I think it, it ends up really kind of hamstringing us in our ability to try to uh, make a positive outcome. You also asked the question about, you know, kind of what are the implications for, you know, humanity in general? 
Um, and I mean, I don't think I have any really, uh, insightful answers there. All I can say is that, you know, for me personally, um, and I know this is true of a lot of people who, um, are outdoor oriented in, in, in care about nature and wildlife and that kind of thing. Um, there's just something essential, uh, in knowing in a world that is so, you know, increasingly covered with concrete and steel, um, and polluted and, and degraded, there's something comforting in knowing that we still have, um, species of wildlife, you know, like whales and dolphins and condors and pandas and tigers and elephants and things like that, um, that are still out there living wild in, in nature and, you know, doing their thing that they've been doing for millions of years. And I think a lot of it has to do with sort of just, um, being inspired to, um, to have a respect for the natural realm. And, um, you know, so many people I think have lost touch with that. Um, you know, a lot of people live in cities, um, and, you know, towns where they, they really don't have much connection with nature. And, um, you know, I, I think that issues like the, the Kita issue, um, are useful in that they remind us that, you know, there are species of wildlife out there that are struggling to survive in a world that's increasingly dominated by humans. And, you know, we can either ignore them and say, look, you know, we're going to do what's best for our economic uh, situation and we don't care if they go extinct. And if we as a society are happy with that uh, way of doing things, then that's what will happen. But um, if enough people believe that it's important to have a balance between you know, economic prosperity and preservation of some semblance of the natural world as existed before we got here. Um, I think I personally believe that we can find that balance and we can find a, 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 you know, a way for most, if not all these species of wildlife to continue to exist in a world that, you know, we, to be honest, we, we dominate as a species, but um, it's going to involve a lot of work and a lot of effort. And, you know, issues like the, the Bikita issue are going to be the kind of things that we're going to have to struggle with and trying to find a way to get that balance right. Tom, I, it's really comforting to hear the words you just stated about, you know, the, the, essentially the condition of the world, the direction that we're headed in as, you know, we're constantly developing um, and, and building all these artificial environments and just kind of pushing out everything that was, you know, naturally here. Um, despite the fact that I feel like a lot of people, um, including myself are aware that that's happening. There's something extremely comforting in just hearing those words come out of your mouth and that you recognize that's happening and that, that emotional connection with, the remaining uh, uh, portion of, of of wildlife and nature that is currently still on the planet, um, just knowing that, and if, if if there was just some power where you could uh, put that that feeling and that 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 knowledge into rain droplets and just have it rain all over the planet, <laughs> where everybody would think that way. It would just be an amazing, amazing. That would be great. <laughs> so it's. I mean, I, I give. I give. Um, mad props to you even saying something like that. Like I said, I, I you, you hear it when you're immersed in the conservation world, whether it's science or um, outreach. It that's it seems like a given. That's what you're going to hear. But I I have to say I never grow t- I never grow tired of hearing that sort of stuff. And we hope that listeners to the show and through your organization, our organization, and whoever else either hears the podcast or watches the videos. Um, that we do or any other organization that is involved in conservation um, can reach some of those other people that you know don't necessarily have not experienced that those thoughts or those emotions um, and why that it matters because the connect the connection part is not only the connection to nature itself but the connection is to humans that are connected to nature and I think that once you can tie all that together um, that's how we're going to be able to learn how to coexist so you, thank you very much for you know, saying that that's, that's, that's really, that's the cherry on the cake right there. Well, thank you very much. I, I, you know, I, I really do think that, that it's true. I mean, it's, it's kind of a cliche, but it's really true that we're all interconnected. Uh, All of us people are interconnected and we people are interconnected with all the other forms of life on this planet. And that's how things evolved. And that's the way this planet works. And if it's going to continue working, we've got to maintain those connections. I'm just going to thank you, Tom, for a really 
awesome conversation. Yeah, it means a lot, I think, to, to Sean and I to, to get your perspective on these most recent developments uh, that we've seen going on with the Vaquita. So yeah, we always appreciate your, your perspective and thanks a lot for joining us. Well, thank you. I wish I could have painted a bit of more, more of a rosy picture, but um, you know, it is what it is. And, and you know, let's hope that uh, things will look better in a few years. Thanks, guys. All right. That was our conversation with Tom Jefferson, the director of Viva Vaquita. I love how Sean and Tom wrapped up this conversation with a big-picture perspective on this topic and conservation as a whole. Vaquita conservation efforts are unique in many ways, but one thing that sets these efforts apart is the extremely limited range of the species. It's important to take a step back from time to time and think about what these efforts mean within the larger context of endangered species recovery and global conservation efforts, and Tom really did a great job of presenting this perspective. If you'd like to learn more about what the year 2016 has meant for Vaquita conservation, you can head over to the website for our film project, Souls of the Vermilion Sea, at vaquitafilm.com. There you'll find Sean's Year in Review blog post, which presents a comprehensive perspective on what we saw over the course of the year while working on this documentary film. Of course, that link will also be available on the show notes page for this episode, along with more information about Viva Vaquita and all the excellent work being done by this organization to help save the Vaquita. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC 102. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, you can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. If you really want to express your love for the show, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, along with today's co-host, Sean Vogel. Our theme music is by The Humanoids. The Humanoids.